Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see everybody out. It's funny, a couple days ago, this white stuff fell from the sky. I wasn't quite sure what it was. And uh, it's, I think we're supposed to get more snow, and it'll finally seem like winter's here. Um, but it's been kind of nice. I've enjoyed it so far, and I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving time, and you're here and you don't have too much turkey in your stomach, and uh, that stuff makes you drowsy, and so we don't want that. But uh, or if you'd open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2, we're going to finish this small but powerful prophetic book, one of the last books in the Old Testament. We began some time ago a study on these minor prophets, and hopefully as we've gone through this, you're more familiar with the truths and what God uh, wants to say to you personally uh, through these powerful uh, prophets. Haggai chapter 2. Before we try anything, though, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day. Not just because the day is 24 hours long or because there's activities. We thank you for it because it's the day you've made and you're here. And it would be tempting, God, for us to think about what's coming up later today or maybe even this next week. But what we really, really long for, I hope and pray, is we'd hear your heart this morning. We'd hear what this prophet has to say, not not thousands of years ago, but today, in this moment, we'd hear you. We'd be changed because of it. So please open our hearts, please open our eyes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I was about a freshman in high school, um, I lived in Illinois. Crystal Lake, Illinois, um, but at that point, Dad wanted to relocate, and so up in Wisconsin, he found some acreage with an old barn on it, and Dad had a great idea, let's turn that barn into a house. So we spent about a year and a half going up there on weekends and whenever we could to work on uh, basically transforming this barn into this house, and the barn had a ground level entrance, which, but then there was a, another part where the, the ground sloped and the, the land was actually at the bottom of the basement. And we had to paint this barn, and, and uh, so Dad has me on this extension ladder, fully extended, and so it's kind of bows in the middle, you know, you're feeling it, and, and I'm reaching as high as I can, I can't reach the peak, I'm a good couple feet away, I got roller, I got as far, top, I'm doing everything you should not do, okay, to try to get this, I can't get it. Dad says, I got an idea, let's go up on the roof, and... And I'll tie you up around the chimney, and you can hang over the edge. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I don't think so, Dad. Oh, don't worry. It'll work out good. So we get up on the roof. I want to be an obedient son. And so I get up on the roof, and, and sure enough, Dad's tying a rope around my waist, and that'll hold, he says, and, and I'll go around the chimney once. And, and so, but he said, don't worry. I'll also hang on to it. So I'm like, oh man, you know, I trust dad, chimney not so much. Um, but I did it, and so took a lot of courage, but there I was dangling over the edge, painting, and uh, believe me, I did a thorough job because I did not want to come back up there because my dad's the kind that said, you know what, you missed a spot up there, you know, that wasn't going to happen. And so there I was dangling and dangling, and uh, uh, it takes courage sometimes to do what your dad wants, and uh, it certainly takes courage sometimes to do what our Heavenly Father wants. And that is truly the case here in Haggai 2. It was a call to courage for God's people. 
And courage was significant. It's what it would, be, it would take for them to accomplish what God called them to. And by the way, it'll, it's what it will take for you to accomplish what God has for you. There's always going to be times in our Christian life it will take courage to do what he calls us to do. A lot of times in our Christian life, it's not easy. He stretches us. We feel like Gumby sometimes. And it takes courage to do what he wants us to do. But if we look at the first nine verses, I want us to note, pick up on something here. I'm going to read the first nine verses. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And as for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of the, all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver's mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now this audience is the same as the first message. When we introduced the book of Haggai, we, the context was there was a remnant, three waves, three groups of people coming back from exile in Babylon. God had so arranged it that they were able to come back. And many took advantage of this opportunity. Now, they didn't have a lot when they came back. They didn't have much at all. But slowly they began to accumulate little. And remember last chapter, they began to invest in building their panel houses. And God says, hey, whoa, time out. What about my house? And so he addressed their misplaced priorities. And so God asks them three questions. And he forces the people to admit something. That the present temple was not as glorious as the first one. If I'm going to read Ezra chapter 3, 10 through 12. I want you to kind of get a feeling of what it was like. Ezra paints a very unique picture for us. Here's kind of what was going on. Ezra chapter 3. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. You get this idea that there are those who are probably over 80 who remembered this first temple. And when the foundation was laid of this one, they wept because it was nothing like the first one. And so they kind of got into this comparison thing, but yet God asked these questions to force them to deal with reality. This temple was nothing like Solomon's. God wanted to deal in reality. He always does. He wanted them to see where they were at. But in light of this, he also wanted them to know something remarkable. 
that his presence would be with them. Because courage is possible because of God's presence. The comparison they made, it really brought discouragement. Because they compared the two. But God says, I'm calling you to something greater, to a life of courage, and you can be courageous because of me. And I was reminded that the key to despondency, the key to discouragement is not listening to our self-talk. It's certainly not comparing ourselves with others or others' calls, but listening to him and recognizing his presence in our life. And he says it three times in verse 4. Take courage. Take courage. Take courage. And it's almost expansive as he says it to one and then to more and then to more. The implication is it's going to take courage. It's going to take courage for you to do what I'm calling you to do. It's, again, that's still the same. First Chronicles 28, 10 through 20, the Lord reiterated the promise he had made to the Israelites when they left Egypt, and the same charge was given to Solomon. Be courageous. Be courageous when you build the first temple. It's amazing how all through the Bible we hear that phrase, be courageous. Exodus 29 and Exodus 33 These returnees could identify with their forefathers who departed from Egypt because they recently departed from Babylon, so they could relate. And I wonder if there must have been those who were theologically naive and doubted that God could be with them, especially because the temple and the ark were not intact. They so closely associated God's presence with the temple, and I'm wondering if there were some that said, because this temple isn't as glorious, I wonder if God won't be with us, or maybe he won't be us with us to the degree he was. And so there were probably a lot of thoughts going around in their mind. And undoubtedly, fear gripped many people. Fear that maybe God had written his eternal Ichabod over Jerusalem, or God had said, my glory will no longer be with you. Maybe they feared that. Maybe they feared that no amount of praying or piety would induce him to bless them again. I'm sure they had fear that this whole endeavor was in vain. Fear that the political enemies would in fact win. Fear that all was lost. And yet God comes and calls them to courage. He says, the reason you can be courageous is I'm present. We need to be reminded of that. I'm amazed how often we can forget that. That God is with us. The moments you're sitting reading a book, the moments you're at work behind a desk, the moment maybe you're pounding a hammer, how easy it is to forget. He's not there. We forget his presence. It's not a conscious thought throughout our day. We tend to focus on our abilities, our efforts, our agendas, but there's not a conscious thought often that God is present in that moment. Sometimes uh, Cindy will ask me to pick up an ingredient from the store. And inevitably, i got to write it down. I don't want to forget. I don't want to let her down. Because in the midst, the reason I need to write it down is because in the midst of the day and the challenges and responsibilities, I need to remember it. And sometimes it's like shortening. That's not like something that's really exciting that you want to, you know, you're like, ah, oh, I get to go get shortening today. You know, stuff like that you don't remember. So I got to write it down. I need to keep it before me or I mentally get overtaken by other thoughts. I need to make a conscious effort to remind myself. Because often we get overtaken mentally by other things. And at those times, God can seem so distant. And so God knew we needed a reminder, so he wrote it down in his word. So you and I would not forget. And by the way, oftentimes those ingredients equate chocolate chip cookies. 
or something really, really good. And I remembered that, you know, when we think on truth, when we think, especially remember God's present, there's really good things that come out of that. Good things in our life. Blessing. And we see in this passage a perspective take place, a peace, a confidence that seems to grow because God speaks and reminds him of his presence. Now, verse 6 through 9 remind us again, I've brought this up a lot because the prophets bring it up, and that there's this near and far view fulfillment. And we see it in a phrase, who will shake the heavens and the earth. Now, it probably describes an earthquake, which would be evident of God's supernatural power and intervention. But I believe the scope of these words points to yet a future fulfillment at the time of the second coming of Christ. Matthew 24, 29 through 30, Joel 3 through 16 refer to the shaking that would take place. Now you see here four times, and you probably picked it up as I read the first nine verses, four times the Lord of hosts is used as reference to God. Lord of hosts had this idea, the very first song we sang, the God of angels' armies. That's why we sang it. That's this Lord of hosts, you get the idea. And I love that first song because it reiterates Haggai 2. I kind of wonder if Chris Tomlin, who, those guys who wrote it, had Haggai 2 in mind. The God of angels' armies is always by my side. That's the message that God's trying to get across to them. The Lord of hosts. By the way, that phrase is used 285 times in the Bible, 91 times by the post-exilic prophets. That's a lot. A third of the time, it's just these three prophets, these post-exilic prophets that use it. You see, the emphasis is, is to give Israel hope, a courage for the future, so they wouldn't forget God's presence as their sovereign, conquering king. Now, if you look at verse 6 and 7, you see what he says right there. Once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. They will come with the wealth of the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, God says. Cross-reference that to Hebrews. Chapter 12, verse 25 to 29. Because the author of Hebrews quotes Haggai here. But it's in a different context. The author of Hebrews takes Haggai's words and applies them to the shaking which will take place at God's final judgment. So here we got this far view. The author of Hebrews looks back and he says, Haggai the prophet prophesied that. He had a near view but also had a far view. And that's where the author of Hebrews takes it to the far view Verse 25 through 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That's, by the way, very good advice. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turns away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth. Then, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. You see, the author of Hebrews quotes this and adds that all those who in Christ are part of an unshakable kingdom. That's good news. You and I can have great, great confidence and take courage because God's presence in our life and because of our presence and hiding in Christ will not be shaken. There's hope for the future. We'll endure whatever cosmic disturbances may come the way. 
Thus, Haggai's prophecy still awaits again this future fulfillment. But notice the result of the shaking back to Haggai. Verse 7, there's this political and governmental structures of the world which will be shaken. We understand in verse 8 that God is control of all the resources. So much so, is He in control of all the resources? That He could cause the nations to bring their resources to the temple in the future. This once again would be a reminder to God's people. Because as they looked at this small temple rebuild, didn't have much. Especially not a lot of resources, and God says, hold time out. The gold and silver, that's all mine. Don't worry about it. I can bring that here. You don't need to worry about that. Why? Because I'm with you. The Lord of hosts is with you. Verse 9, and although we read verse 9, although the, the present temple was not as impressive as Solomon's, the Lord promised that the final glory of the temple would be greater than its former glory. And God also promised to bring peace to the site of the temple. Neither's happened yet, by the way. If you ask any Jewish person today about a rebuilt temple and peace in the land, that would make them very happy. Now some view Herod's impressive expansion of the temple as what this is referring to, as a fulfillment of this prophecy. I think we need to reject that thought because the glorification of the temple predicted by Haggai is associated with universal judgment, not with a self-glorifying madman. A godless man. So it's probably very doubtful he has that in mind here. Now if you look at verse 6 through 9, a little bit closer. They're loaded verses. I can't help but think how encouraging these words must have been. God's presence assured so the Israelites could continue the work of rebuilding. They needed assurance. And the remedy for a discouraged heart is a reminder of God's presence. Matter of fact, Christ gave you and I a mission before he was ascended into heaven. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's what I'm calling you to do. Go do this. Go to all nations. And by the way, there's going to be times you're discouraged. There's going to be times you want to give up. But then he added the end of verse 20, didn't he? And lo, I'm with you always. What's the promise? You can have courage because I'm with you. Even though the call is hard, Even though there's going to be obstacles, the Lord of hosts is with you. He is our comfort. He is our help. I want to read Psalm 46, a couple verses Jay read, but I want these truths, let these truths wash over you. Some of you really, really need these. God is our refuge and our strength. He's a very present help. When? Now. Now, in trouble. Whatever your trouble would be, he's a very present help. Not a future help, although he's probably used that too. He's a present help, right now. And so we're not surprised in verse 10 where he says, Cease striving and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Isaiah reiterates everything Haggai is trying to tell us. God is with you, and because of that, you can be courageous to carry out his call. But courage is desperately needed, and that's the whole point of God's promise. I'm with you, you can have courage, but why do we need courage? One of the reasons we find in verse 10 through 19. Courage is needed to pursue holiness. Follow this train of thought in verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet 
saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Asks now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? The priest answered and said, It will become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to grain heap of twenty measures, there would be only ten. And when one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would be only twenty. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It is not born fruit, yet from this day on, I will bless you. The Lord instructs Haggai to ask some priests some questions pertaining to ritual consecration and defilement. He asks this question, two of them. And the second question is, since a man who touches a corpse is defiled, does he transfer that defilement to other things? The answer is yes. But you can't transfer health. You can only transfer sickness. An example would be, because the first question is really asking, can holiness be transmitted? Now a kiss doesn't bring physical health, but it can bring sickness. And that's what he's saying right here. He said, holiness can't be transferred. Can an activity, even a good activity, transfer holiness? No. And and the priests had it right. They had the right answer. Can a godly association transfer holiness? No. But the second question we can't miss either. Can that which is defiled affect what one does? Yes. Indeed it can. The answer is yes. You see, the point of these two questions is sanctification or cleanness cannot be transferred. But defilement can. Just as, again, health is not contagious, but disease is. The disobedience of the people was like a dead thing in their midst, contaminating all of them. And there's two key principles that we really need to grab out of here. First, again, is holiness is not transferable. You are not holy because of something you do. You are not holy because of some association. You are not holy because you go to Elam. You're not holy because your parents are Christians. You're not holy because your parents are pursuing holiness. It's not transferable. But the second principle we need to get a hold of, too, is sin contaminates what one does. Sin contaminates what we do. They knew the answers, but they did not deal with the real issue. That's just it. They knew the answers. It's kind of like sometimes if you've grown up in a church or your children, they go through Sunday school, they know the right answers, oftentimes. But do they deal with what they really need to deal with? And to deal with what you really need to deal with, that takes courage. That takes courage. It's just so easy to go through the motions, isn't it? In verse 15 through 17, God reminds them to recall the state of affairs prior to the resuming of the temple project three months earlier. The Lord had struck them. Why? To get their attention. And they should not think that contact with something holy, such as the temple, such as the rebuilding of this temple, just because they were rebuilding the temple didn't make them holy. God was trying to to get across a point to them. This, This building this temple 
I'll be with you. This is a great thing. But don't think for a moment it will make you clean. Don't think for a moment that your praise will now all of a sudden magically become acceptable to him. Don't think your association with this temple, with your position, makes you acceptable to God. Certainly God says the same thing. Those associations don't make you holy. Holy is not transferable, but understand that sin contaminates all that we do. It's been said it's easier to fall into sin than fall into holiness. (laughs) That's for sure. Why? Because the heart's deceitful above all things. The mind, the seat of emotions, the passions that we have, that real part of who we are, the most real part can be deceitful. We need to consider that very carefully. Some of you know that. But some of you have settled for this false sense of holiness. How do you know? You're caught up in the rules. There's too much do not in little pursuit of the character of Christ. And verse 14 speaks to this desire. Look at verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. So is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. We also see it in verse 17. Verse 14, what they offer. Verse 17, I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me. It was their desire. It was their will. God's trying to say the real issue is not your association with the temple. The real issue is your heart. And to deal with your heart, I contend, takes courage. It's just so much easier to go through the motions, to punch the clock, But it takes courage to get down with what really matters. Easier to follow rule. Easier to have a superficial spirituality. But it takes courage to address the desires, the motives, to deal with the real condition. Because we don't want to deal with motives and desires of our heart. We rely on contact. Contact with religion. Contact with rules. Hoping that it will somehow transfer to us holiness. Somehow this contact will somehow separate us from sin. Somehow this contact will conform us to the image of Christ. But then Proverbs 4.23 comes along and challenges us to a courageous living which says, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. It takes courage to do that. It takes courage to evaluate your mind, your inner spirit, and your motives of it all. It takes courage to call a spade a spade. It might be humbling to have to go to your spouse and ask for forgiveness. Might be humbling to have to go to your child or another person and say, I've wronged you, I gossiped, or I did this. That takes courage. Because you're doing what's real. You're dealing with the heart. And God says it takes courage to pursue holiness. That's what he's trying to say through Haggai to you and I. And this is a challenge to all believers. Do you have the courage to face your heart? Will you choose to pursue holiness by admitting your resistance to sin? Maybe admitting your bitterness, your unforgiveness, your anger, we can't excuse that. We can't excuse our anger and say someone made me angry. No, you choose to be angry. That's not someone else. That's on you. Are you courageous enough to deal with that? Are you courageous enough to deal with your pride? None of us want to be wrong. And sometimes we can be so wrong, we're right. And sometimes we can be so right, we're wrong. It's all about our attitude. And you might need to go to someone and say, you know what, we got an argument, and it was my pride that got in the way. Would you forgive me? That takes courage. It takes courage to pursue holiness. The people were to notice in verse 18 through 19 that discipline had run its course. 
that there was now a day to begin the new temple. Their hardships continued for sure. But as this day, God says, as this prophecy, I'm going to bless you. And so God gives a great promise, a great, great picture of the future as they get courageous and deal with the real issues of their heart. Then we get to the third point, verse 20 through 23. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai in the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms, destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. These words are directly to Zerubbabel. He needed to understand he had a role. He was a representative. A representative indeed as a chosen descendant of David. It was a key to understanding really these words. We kind of sang some song and, and uh, the Hillmans were kind enough to do the Advent reading which pointed to the prophets. Because the prophets pointed to Christ. And Zerubbabel would be from the lineage of David, which is the lineage the Messiah would come from. And the promise, he says, is I will make you like a signet ring. In other words, God has a special purpose for you, Zerubbabel. A hand-chosen purpose. An indication of honor that he gave to Zerubbabel to be the guarantee of the continuation of the Davidic line. And Matthew 1, 12-13 points to this. Zerubbabel would be a visual guarantee of a glorious future for the house of David. And again, the ultimate honor would come through Jesus Christ. And with the assurance of these promises, the Israelite community could move in confidence. I'm also noted that God spoke specifically to one of the leaders. And sometimes leaders need that assurance, that confidence to move forward, because God has a purpose for them. Zerubbabel certainly needed that. And the final words of the book jump out to me. Declares the Lord of hosts. It's like an explanation point. Haggai saying all that I prophesied. This is not just some verbiage. And hopefully we don't take it that way. Hopefully we don't look at Haggai and say, oh wow, this is just an Old Testament book. It's just a kind of mumbo-jumbo of a guy who lived years ago. No, declares the Lord, says no, this is God speaking. We need to take it serious declares the Lord of hosts. This message we can take courage in, that Jesus Christ is fulfillment of all prophecy. And he, in all things, in Christ are yes, as Paul said. I'm reminded that to sick, to the dying, to the confused, and to the hurting, when God says he'll never leave you nor forsake, forsake you, his word is true, because he declares it. When he says the word forever, you can know his word is true. Because God declared it true. You and I can take courage from God's promises. That's the whole point. Courage flows from God's promises. And so that's why we need to be aware of what those promises are in God's Word. Especially the first one, I'm with you always. God's presence gives us that courage. Which, three applications, really, I think, help sum this up. One is you can face present situations with courage. Why? Because God is with you. One of the reasons I was ready to hang off that rope and risk my life wasn't the chimney. Dad said, don't worry, I got it. 
I got it. What was the, what was the rope that really held me? It was the love of my father. It was the faithfulness of my dad. I knew dad wouldn't let go. I knew dad was strong enough. I knew, God, I knew dad knew how to hold the rope. And you need to be reminded this morning, God's powerful enough. He loves you and he knows how to hold the rope. He's not going to let you go. Face the present situations with courage because God is with you. And you're probably going to need to write that down. It's like I needed to write down on the list not to forget the shortening. You're going to need to write that down somewhere. I guarantee it. Write it down in your mirror. God is with me. Write it down in your car somewhere. A big index card in your Bible. Do not forget that. You need that truth. You need that reminder. God is with you in the very present. In the second application, face your heart. Do it with courage. And when you do that, you're going to find a joy in pursuing holiness. You'll get past the rules, get past the religion. You'll confess your sin, the Holy Spirit points out to you. You'll quit faking it. And when you get real at the heart level, there's a, there's a, there's a peace that comes that only God can give. A deep-seated peace. So deal with the pride, deal with the heart issues. I know it takes courage, but God will bless it. And kind of a summation of these two and all of Haggai is you and I can face the future with confidence. God's word is true. You can trust his promises. And the more we trust them, the more our courage will grow. You can trust him. In our series, through all the minor prophets, they tell us from the very beginning of history to the last gasp that God shows himself to be a merciful, gracious, holy, and loving God beyond all comprehension. And from the first book of the Bible to the last, the prophets declare that God has crafted an astonishing plan to bless untold millions of redeemed human beings with eternal life, eternal significance, and eternal joy. And I don't know about you, but that is a truly a major message from some minors. Let's pray. Father, um, it's been my prayer this week that your people would hear you. And I know some of my brothers right now desperately and sisters desperately need to hear that you're, you're with them. They've forgotten. Deep in their spirit, God, they've forgotten that. When the Mondays have come and the Wednesdays and the Thursdays and all the stresses and all the challenges and uh, all the, the mental distractions, Lord, they've forgotten. God, this morning, your spirit's reminded them. God, sink it deep in them, in their mind and in their heart. They'd never forget, in the very moment, this moment, you're with us. And every moment beyond this. Help them never forget it. Help me never forget it. God, I also realize as we come to grips with that, we also realize that deep down in our hearts, we face defilement. We face the challenges of the flesh. The flesh that seemingly cry out persistently to go our own way. To excuse behaviors that are unbiblical. To excuse mindsets. To rationalize, God, it's all a part of what we all battle. God, what I'm praying for each person here, young and old, courage to face it. 
a courage to call the condition of our heart what you call it. A condition to call our behaviors what you call it. Give us that courage, God. And Lord, as we go through this life and we, we face the issues of the heart and we remember that you're present, and God, I pray those moments where the future may look bleak, you'd remind us and give us great confidence of what the future holds. So be with your people, God. Encourage us from Haggai. Instruct us from Haggai. Change us because of this message. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.